Chapter 3 Made for Glory Ancient stories have a long history. We find out about them through carvings on rock, old and fraying pieces of papyrus or vellum, or if you're looking closer to home, palm leaves, upon which the secrets of the future have apparently been penned down. The stories engraved upon these documents and edifices must be old, for the structures themselves are ancient, but we seem to forget that writing came later, much, much later. The tradition of oral recitation predates the written word, often by centuries. Storytellers had such great repute in olden times for this very reason, that thousands of shlokas and couplets telling the tales of Hindu epic heroes resided within the minds of people long before someone thought to write it down. The same is true with the stories that I have been telling you. Neither the Iliad nor any of the other pieces of the epic cycle are by any means the be-all and all of the stories of Helen and Paris or Troy or Sparta. They are simply the versions that have survived. They have also been subjected to analyses, criticisms and debates and discussion over centuries. But the fact is that these are stories. They are definitely rooted in history and the characters and situations may paint a picture of what society back then was like, but that would be a toddler's painting. Moreover, a historic analysis is not the aim here. The aim is simply to tell a story. And you as a reader or a listener get to decide which version you like best. I start off with this warning because the next part of this story has been a subject of major debate and drama, even in ancient Greece. And considering that this story is literally Greek, I hope you'll forgive me for any mispronunciations. Just know that this is an honest attempt, and basically I tried, guys. Hopefully I did it justice. Achilles, you are a war drum. Your name is the battle chant on ten thousand ships. You are a weapon to be pointed, born for war but made. Peace by precious peace, by the love of a man more gentle than you could have ever dreamed. You know your pride is vicious, it is far sharper than any spear you wield, it will destroy more than you will know. Achilles, when he dies you will feel like the world is burning, like the stars are dying one by one. There are some wounds that break even heroes beyond repair. Most ancient cultures seem to agree that the world came from goop. It's the first things that came from the goop that different cultures have different takes on. The Greeks say it was a dome. They called this dome Gaia, the earth. Above her, another dome came into existence and they called it Uranos, the sky. Then a lot of things happened very quickly. Gaia and Uranos have a bunch of kids, some are exiled to a bottomless pit because they're ugly, some have a hundred hands, one son kills Uranos and throws him into the sea. It's a whole thing and I don't want to get into it right now. We do, however, need to know about one particular ancient and primordial son of Gaia. His name is Nereus, the old man of the sea. The poet Hesiod, a contemporary to Homer, writes, 
the truthful Nereus tells no lies. They called him the old gentleman because he is trustworthy and never forgetful of what is right. Nereus was the father of one sea goddess we've already become familiar with. In fact, the previous chapter started with her wedding. I speak of course of Thetis, who I have just barely introduced so far. Her role in this story is recurring but minor, and she is mainly known for the son she bears. But I feel like I must mention who exactly Thetis is at this point. Like Aphrodite, like every deity actually, she is an amalgamation. According to the well-established version of the myths, she is of course the daughter of Nereus and Doris, but her origins are far older. She was one of the oldest deities worshipped in what would one day become classical Greece. Though most records of who she was have been lost, one of the rare few sources claim her to be the one who created the universe. Her name has pre-Greek origins and might have the root meaning to create or to establish. This is the nature of mythology. As a new brand of gods crop up and gain mass following, the older ones are either incorporated in smaller, less significant forms or completely decimated. A classic example is Athena who was reduced from the symbol of wisdom and strategy to a simple housewife goddess by the Romans. It is not too far a stretch to believe that this might be what happened to Thetis as well. In this story, all Thetis is is the exquisite Nereid ordered to marry the mortal king Peleus because of a prophecy and Zeus's brilliant plan. For those of you who don't know, Zeus is the ancient Greek god of thunder and lightning and the head of the Olympian Council of Twelve. His wife was Hera, goddess of marriage, but often he forgot he was married. As for epithets, well, I call him he of the fragile ego, because forcing a goddess to marry an old mortal king was his way of ensuring that her son would never challenge him to his throne. How did this wedding occur? How did a mortal force a goddess to marry him and bear him a son? Didn't the old man of the sea, the all-powerful Nereus, who might have been half-octopus, do anything? All good questions. The answers are simple. Zeus, Zeus, and women's rights in ancient Greece. According to one tale, Zeus came to Peleus and told him about Thetis himself. He told him where she would be and that when Peleus found her, he should bind her and hold her down till she agreed to marry him. For a goddess cannot go back on a promise once made. Feel free to judge him. I've been doing it for years and he hasn't struck me down with lightning yet. Back to the wedding. Peleus got many presents. The centaur Chiron gave Peleus an ashen spear that had been polished by Athena and had a blade forged by Hephaestus, the divine blacksmith. Poseidon gave him the immortal horses Peleus and Xanthus. We all know the fabulous and climactic end to that wedding, but in case you missed the last chapter, it involved a golden apple and an auntie who was mad she wasn't invited to the party. The gods all dispersed quickly after realizing that Aphrodite, Hera and Athena might have an argument of cataclysmic proportions involving that apple, and Peleus and his new wife made their way back to his palace in Fire, where they spent the next few years he happily and she imprisoned in marriage. Soon enough, a son was born of their union and his name is one of the most famous in history, Achilles, who the scholars and those obsessed with classics and literature know as the most tragic hero of the Trojan War. There are many similarities between Achilles and the heroes who predated him, 
like Heracles, Theseus and Perseus, his fate was predetermined and his life was basically the plot of a Bollywood film. It had mysteries and charades, an epic war and an epic love, bites of comedy and a heaping helping of tragedy. Hear that, David Benioff? All your zhuzhing up did was ruin an already great story. Obviously, I'm talking about Troy, the 2004 movie. But unlike the other heroes, Achilles was an instrument of mortal conflict and mortal war. His enemies were great warriors, it's true, but they were human. So without much of a stretch, you can interpret Achilles' tale as something that occurred in reality, in a real war. Which is probably why I never bothered reading this story until Madeline Miller's masterpiece. More on that later. For the first few years of his life, Achilles grew up in his father's kingdom of fire. True to the promise that bound her, Thetis vanished into the seas the moment he was born. And to be honest, I don't even blame her. But even so, she is still the most caring, godly parent any hero had probably ever, as you'll no doubt see soon enough. In Greek mythology, there are three morai. Often they are depicted as old hags holding balls of string. They are called Clotho, the spinner, Lachesis, the allotter, and Atropos, the inflexible. Their names are not so important, for in every tale I have ever read, they are referred to simply as the fates. And those strings in their hands are the strings of fate. They weave back and forth, often intersect with one another, and generally leave some wiggle room for one's own decisions. But few strings in the fate's hands were woven as tightly as that of Achilles. He was an arrow, launched at birth and headed impossibly swiftly along an established path with no room for any change in decision. Thetis knew this. She knew he would fall headlong into a war and fight at the front lines, carrying the whole of Greece upon his back. She also knew that she could no more alter his destiny than we can. In the most famous stories, she tried to help him by making him indestructible. In some versions, she anoints Achilles with ambrosia, the nectar of the gods, to try and burn away his mortal parts. But in the most famous tale, she dips the infant Achilles into the river Styx, one of the five rivers of the underworld, leaving any part of him that touches its cursed waters invulnerable to mortal weapons. But as I've said probably a million times by now, Achilles is mortal. A mortal soul cannot withstand Ambrosia, nor the waves of the Styx, at least not without some help. So in all these stories, she holds him by the heel of his foot, anchoring him to his mortality and therefore leaving him vulnerable to all the shortcomings mortality entails in one small part of his body. This is where the expression Achilles' heel comes from. It means a drawback or a vulnerability, i.e. math. Also, the name Achilles tendon is the name of the common tendon of the muscles of the back of the leg which inserts into, you guessed it, the heel. Medicine is literally Greek and Latin, trust me guys. Though this story is insanely famous, most scholars agree that it was added later on. In the actual epic cycle, Achilles is just a really strong and really fast warrior. No Ambrosia and no Underworld River steroids were used in the making of Epic Cycle Achilles. In my previous chapters, I talk mostly about the character I've picked and move the story along through their life. I cannot do that here. I must also bring in another pivotal character. For like I said, Achilles' life is entwined with that of many, but none more so than the son of Menetius of Opus. 
Menetius was an Argonaut who rode with Jason on his many quests and escapades. He ruled the small region of Opis and had one son, Patroclus, whose name literally translates to glory of the father. That name should tell you everything you need to know about the relationship between father and son. Menetius wanted Patroclus to be everything, rich, powerful and glorious at any cost. This was how the young prince of Opis arrived at Sparta and sat alongside the likes of Menelaus, Ajax and Agamemnon as one of the suitors for Helen's hand in marriage. He was a little boy, barely a teenager, and was only allowed on a technicality. He was of royal blood and a teenager, therefore a man by some Greek definitions. He had no great deeds to his name, he barely had a decade to his name, but his father had wealth and respect. Obviously Patroclus didn't have a chance. Helen barely looked at him, thank the gods, because that would have made this a whole different kind of story. But like all the princes present there, we can only assume that he also took the oath of Tyndarius and promised to protect Helen, a fact that becomes important a little later. So Patroclus returned home empty-handed and was soon banished. I don't exactly know why, but most stories agree that it's because he killed someone. According to some, it was another boy, some others say it was a noble son, but bottom line, he was exiled, and who took him in but Peleus? Again, not entirely sure how that happened, but it happened. Apparently, Peleus thought the older boy would serve as a role model for his own demigod son. So Achilles sits in his princely quarters just doing his thing and in walks this handsome older boy who introduces himself as Patroclus. I'ma live with you guys now, he says, and thus was born a bond that lasted a lifetime. Achilles and Patroclus are a pair. In every version of the story, they always appear together. No other aspect of this entire humongous tale is as unanimously agreed upon as this fact. Achilles and Patroclus are the dynamic duo. They are Kirk and Spock, Harold and Kumar, Sherlock and Watson, Jake and Charles, Romeo and Juliet. Wait, what? Yeah, we don't really know exactly what they were to each other, what they grew up to become, the exact relationship they had with one another, and this has annoyed everyone for literally thousands of years. Apparently, people have been nosy about other people since people were a thing. In the Iliad, Homer describes their relationship as deep and meaningful. It is portrayed that Achilles speaks tenderly to Patroclus but is callous and arrogant towards others. Homer never explicitly casts the two as lovers, but in the archaic and classic periods of Greece, that is how they were shown, especially by Plato and a few others. But the fact is that the strongest interpersonal relationship Achilles ever had was with Patroclus. Either theirs is a depiction of a healthy male-male relationship rooted in mutual respect and love, or they were in love. As you will see later, Patroclus was the one who brought out from Achilles the all-consuming rage that turned the tide of the war upon its head. The one emotion that Achilles is famous for is his rage, and the reason for that rage is Patroclus. Not his wife, who he left without a thought, and not his son, who he never saw, and definitely not Helen, who he never even laid eyes upon throughout his life. It is vague though, I'll give you that. Because the love you feel for a comrade in arms isn't that different from what you would feel for a comrade of your heart. 
What they weren't though is cousins. This much I know for sure. Just don't watch Troy. Nothing in that movie is worth watching. Like literally nothing. Just don't watch it. Please. Ambiguous relationships like this are not uncommon in Greek mythology. Alexander the Great and Hephaestion, for example. And nor does Greek mythology shy away from depicting same-sex relationships. Zeus and Ganymede, Apollo, Hyacinthus and Zephyrus and so on. I wish so much that stories could be taken as just that, simple tales of made-up characters. But they mean so much more. Simply because your perception of a character can have such a profound effect on your perception of you. Somewhere, a 14-year-old LGBTQ kid deep in the closet, paralyzed by fear of coming out, comes across stories like this, that are a thousand years old and sees themselves in the characters. These stories might be what's giving them hope to live another day. On the other hand, depiction of healthy male-male friendships is something that I almost never saw growing up. There's a reason toxic masculinity is a thing. There's a longer conversation to be had here, and it is being had for a thousand years. But that's not my job. I'm here to tell you a story. And I only deviated this far from the plot because it's pertinent to today's situation. This chapter comes out in the middle of a pandemic, in the midst of riots, and in the middle of Pride Month. So that there was my two cents. Now back to the story. Once he reached his teenage years, Achilles was sent away to study under the centaur Chiron, as every hero before him was. Chiron was the son of the titan Cronos and Asenev. Apollo himself taught the centaur archery and the ways of medicine. Many stories credit him with the discovery of botany and pharmacy. He is a teacher and a nurturer and one of my favorite characters to boot, which of course means that he died. But I live in denial, so you'll have to read that story yourselves. Do remember that he's a centaur, half horse, half man, not half goat, the way Disney showed him to be. The Disney movie Hercules is many things, but historically accurate or well, culturally accurate is probably not one of them. Let's end this chapter here, with Achilles learning both the art of war and the arts of healing from a wise teacher and playing and hunting on the slopes of Mount Pelion. Let's ignore that by this time the lovesick Paris made his way to Sparta and when Menelaus was away either seduced or kidnapped the beautiful Helen and sailed back to Troy, triggering all the kings of Greece to gather in arms in fulfillment of the oath of Tyndareus and sail across the Aegean Sea in a fleet of ships 10,000 strong. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bookbenders podcast. If you'd like to hear more, follow me on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can see pictures and depictions on my profile at the Bookbender with eights in place of the Bs on Instagram, where I also post updates of future episodes. If you're interested in reading my original stories and poems, you can find them on Wattpad under the same handle. And until you hear me next, this is Pranav, hoping you have an amazing time.